So, is he like a rumba? Yeah, he's like a rumba. Yeah. There are so many little-known fairy tales, folklore stories, and chapters of history to explore in this world. So much of it is wackadoo, unbelievable, disturbing, enthralling, mind-bending, and just plain weird. When I find these stories, they get stuck in my head, and I absolutely have to share them with someone. Usually I inflict these tales on my husband Dan, along with our chocolate lab Lily and cat Collins, but I thought, why not share these with you? I'm Gina Wagner. Welcome to Tail Wagging, a gleeful retelling of little-known fairy tales, folklore, history, and more. Merry Christmas, Gina. I have more stories about characters around the holiday season around the world for you today. Yay. Last time I told you about the Kaganir and Kagatio. This week I want to tell you about the Belschnickel, the Nisa, and the Yule Goat. Okay, that sounds really fun. What country are we <laughs> headed to today, Gina? <laughs> well, first I want to tell you about the Belschnickel which is also called Belznickel, Pelznickel, Krinkles, Belchnickel, Pelznickel. They're all spelled different. And sometimes the Christmas woman. Sometimes it would be a veritable woman, but with a masculine force and action. So sometimes women are allowed to be Belchnickel too, which I think is a really cool thing because none of the other characters really have that of this type. Would you say we have roller derby... Players with masculine force and action. <laughs> I I don't think force and action has to necessarily be masculine or feminine. It could just be strong. Good answer. <laughs> so, everyone knows Santa. We're going to talk about lesser known characters this holiday season. We missed Krampus Knot, which took place December 5th. Maybe he'll get his own episode another year. Uh, so we're going to talk about the favorite of Dwight Schrute from the TV show The Office. He dressed up as Belschnickel in episode 9 of season 9 and tried to explain to everybody. Something that the TV show got wrong, though, was he also talked about Belschnickel having a companion, uh, which was Black Peter. That is not Belschnickel's companion. That is actually um, Sinterklaas's companion, uh, Varta Peter. And yes, he's in blackface. And yes, it's not great. But that has nothing to do with Belschnickel at all. <laughs> so at first glance, Krampus and Belschnickel seem to have a lot in common, both being a little bit more of the Christmas Punisher type in appearance than reward like Santa. But Krampus is Austrian, Belschnickel is German, but uh, Belschnickel doesn't have like horns and a long tongue, Belschnickel dresses in dark furs, and bells means fur, and the rest comes from St. Nick, so it translates to Nicholas in furs. They're very creative. And uh, he's more of a combination of St. Nick and Krampus. 
he's thought to be a companion of St. Nicholas. Like, they're working, they're co-workers, they're working on slightly different schedules. And he came to America by way of eastern Pennsylvania by the Dutch who resided there. And they kept the traditions from their homeland in the Rhine province. I think it makes a lot of sense when you're talking about all the children of the world to divide up the naughty list and the nice list. So I could kind of see a division of labor between Santa and Belschnickel. And true, when's the last time you saw anyone get coal from Santa? He doesn't... He's, he he says, oh, they're all pretty nice <laughs> most mm-hmm. of the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. See? Zero Instagram, zero tweets of coal in my, <laughs> in my feed here. Zero Facebooks of coal. No coal. I can't find any coal. Well, everything I've learned for all these characters was that the parents super needed characters like this because it helped enforce discipline on their children. <laughs> they needed somebody else to come along and, and, and basically judge them to make it easier. So Belschnickel's the only one to really make it across the Atlantic, uh, unlike Krampus, Farmhand, Rupert, Black Peter, and other Saturnalia cousins. And Belschnickel was a big deal in Pennsylvania in the 1800s, and then the poem A Visit from St. Nicholas was published in 1822, and he had some big competition after that. But the Pennsylvania Dutch loved Christmas and thought that their English neighbors did not have enough spirit. They'd set up a Christmas tree in their home and around the tree was a a putz, which is their version of a nativity scene. And it's made up of figures that the family made out of wood or clay. So they all get together and make this. And each child would set out a little basket of gifts from their parents and from the Christekindle. That's right, the Christ child. Little baby Jesus, who comes on Christmas Eve. (laughs) I know that part of the story. Yeah, uh, but it's kind of hard to imagine baby Jesus, like, he's he's so small, he can't carry as much. So these other characters had to come around, too. Okay. So, yeah, baby Jesus would visit them on Christmas Eve. Um, But before the kids could get any gifts, they would have to be visited by the Belschnickel, and he comes a week or two before Christmas. Belschnickel wears skins, torn, tattered, dirty clothes, topped with the cloak of furs. Sometimes he or she is adorned with bits of foliage, deer antlers. Uh, He has long, tangled hair and a scraggly beard and wears a cap of furs. And he has dirt all over his face, sometimes a scary mask. And he has a bell and birch switches, sometimes a whip, maybe both. He doesn't travel with Santa. He has his own route, visiting the homes of the children of the community. And the first sign that Belschnickel is coming to your home, you will hear a tapping outside your window with the switch that he uses to beat naughty children. Just like that. And then the children would scream, Der Belschnickel! And run away. (laughs) The children would gather them up and sit them down in front of the Belschnickel. The door bursts open and he rushes into the house, instantly menacing the children with his gravelly voice, jerky movements, and probing questions. He will quiz the children on their naughtiness or niceness. Have they been good to their siblings? Have they done their chores without complaining? Have they cleaned their rooms? What was something you did that was nice? So we've been watching a lot of Law and Order lately. It's it's an interrogation process. So in reality... 
much like you have somebody dress up to be the mall Santa. Sorry, kids. Cover the children's ears. Much as you have somebody dress up to be the mall Santa, do you think villages had somebody just be the Velschnickel each year? Oh, absolutely. And go door to door? Yeah, people would do this for each other. It was a lot of fun. Who wants to judge the children and possibly beat them? Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and Belschnickel comes with cakes, nuts, and fruits. One hand would scatter the goodies on the floor. The kids would scramble for the treats. And the other hand would hit them with a switch on their backs. Children should not wince to show how well disciplined they are. What? <laughs> Part of the grading process and whether or not you get treats is whether or not you can get whipped without flinching. Okay, that's one rendition of the story. <laughs> that's, that is one version I read that that's I absolutely a modern had to include. That is... Mm. Bring An- it. <laughs> another version I read, which might be more realistic, was if during the interrogation you admitted to doing something naughty, you'd probably get a rap on the knuckles. It'd be a lot worse if you lied about it. After each child was judged, they'd be asked to recite a prayer or prove something they learned in school to earn a treat from the bag. So that's probably what actually happened, but I kind of I love the terrifying rendition. Either way, the idea is to frighten children into good behavior so they can have presents either from the Christ child or in modern times, Santa. And there are, of course, scarier versions of Belschnickel. Legend has it that he used to drag naughty children into the forest and make them pay for their mischievous behavior through the year. I imagine the parent being like, uh, get Lloyd to come back. Why, where is he going with my child? <laughs> <laughs> Lloyd, you took it too far. You dragged little Timmy into the woods. <laughs> Are those screams I hear? <laughs> Stories used to suggest that he would kidnap naughty children from their beds and never return them to their parents. However, Belschnickel would often give them a chance to redeem themselves, if they deserved it. They were either made to dance, do tricks... This is getting really awkward. (laughs) Sing, recite poems, depending on what the Belschnickel wanted to hear. Yeah, this is going to a dark place. (laughs) Usually usually the story of the Belschnickel is enough to make the fear happen in the children. And that's all they really wanted was the fear. And usually it was an uncle or a grandfather who dressed up for the home visit. And people like to parade around door to door as Belschnickel. They'd have like a shaggy wig and a beard, maybe a mask. And until the Puritans banned Christmas temporarily, it was a time of heavy drinking and organized mischief. And over time, Christmas moved indoors instead of the door-to-door party. People just had too much eggnog, and the holiday became centered around the children. New York outgrew Philadelphia. Santa expanded, took over most of the country. And by the turn of the 20th century, the tradition of bell schnickling, a.k.a. dressing up and delivering treats, soliciting coins, promoting general mayhem, was on its way out and becoming old-fashioned. An article in 1905 wrote that less than 10 years ago, if 25 to 50 Belschnickels didn't visit the homes of each prosperous farmer, something was wrong. And it was all different now, not a Belschnickel to be seen. In modern times, some Pennsylvania microbreweries use his name for a Christmas beer. Nowadays, the story of the Belschnickel is recited or depicted in parts of Germany and Pennsylvania to wreak some Christmas havoc for good humor and to scare naughty children. 
I did not copy the whole thing. It was entirely too long. But uh, this poem called Christmas Time in the Land of the Belschnickel talks about him and his servant, Rupert. A servant's named Rupert, the office. Uh, my favorite lines are, Belschnickel has also been known to feed wild onions to the dairy cows, so their milk will taste of onions and be unfit for use by intruders. Mad lad. <laughs> Absolute mad lad. Late in the night, <laughs> he and Rupert would go from house to house, prying open the windows and breaking down doors, seeking vengeance. They will yank children from their slumber and beat them with switches. Rupert hopes to toss a few in his sack as well. As, I don't know, the sidekick. And that's the story of the Belschnickel. <laughs> He's really cool looking. <laughs> Well, the next character is popular in Scandinavian culture, particularly Norway, Sweden, and Denmark. And it has a couple different names. Uh, Nisa is Norwegian, and Tomte is Swedish. But they're pretty much the same character, and I'm going to be using them interchangeably because all the articles I read did. So Tomte means homestead man, and Nisa is derived from Niels, which is the Scandinavian form of Nicholas. They are believed to be the soul of the first inhabitor of the property that you live on that cleared the space for farming. And each Tomta is a little old man, about the size of a young child, kind of like a gnome. He might have four fingers on each hand, pointed ears, and eyes that reflect light like a cat. He wears gray or navy ragged clothes and a bright red cap that's pointed. And most importantly, they have a long white beard. They really like household pets and are often featured on Christmas cards with a cat. And they are very strong. He lives in your pantry or barn or attic and he watches over your home and farm. The Tompta does work for you. He loves to work, but he will not tolerate any interference from you. Do not micromanage your Tompta. <laughs> If okay, you... <laughs> no problem. So, is he like a Roomba? Yeah, he's like a Roomba. <laughs> you hit the button, let it go, don't try to steer it? Yeah, don't mess with it, just let it go. Okay. <laughs> if you have a clean house, it's believed you have a Tompta living with you. If you screw up this sweet deal, your farm won't thrive and you'll fall into poverty. If you swear, urinate in the barn, mistreat your animals... The Tomta or Nisa will be offended and you can expect a sound thrashing. If you spill something on the floor in your house, it is only proper to shout a warning to the Tomta below. You gotta let them know like, hey, I spilled something, just wanted to let you know about it. Wow, they don't even, you don't even let me know when that happens. <laughs> they especially love horses and they will braid your horse's hair. Do not unbraid your horse's hair, or it'll be bad luck and piss off your Nisa. <laughs> and the Tomta and Nisa don't ask for much. They just want respect. And Yulgrat, which is a Christmas porridge with butter on Christmas Eve. The butter must be on top of the porridge. Do not put it on the bottom. That's very bad. There's a legend of a servant girl who decided to play a trick on the Nisa and hide the butter at the bottom of the bowl. The Nisa saw there was no butter, felt disrespected, and murdered the family's best cow. Oh, I thought you were going to say the daughter. No, took it out on, like, ha-ha, your livelihood. 
Then the Nisa went back to finish the porridge because he was really hungry and found the butter hidden at the bottom of the bowl. Full of grief, he searched and stole an identical cow from a neighboring farm to replace the one that was killed. I'm, I'm struggling with this. <laughs> Other things that Tomta might do if they don't receive their porridge correctly, they might tie your cow's tails together, turn objects upside down, break things, or leave your farm. There was a story of a Norwegian maid who decided to eat the porridge herself and was severely beaten by the Nisa, who said, Have you eaten the porridge for the Nisas? You have to dance with him! That's one way to go about it. Um, It is. It is a way to go about it. (laughs) The bite from a Nisa is poisonous, and it requires otherworldly healing, or you will have to die. There was a time that these spirits were seen as connected to the devil. If you're having any kind of success or good luck, it was because your soul was at risk and you had done some sort of pagan ritual to summon a tomta to your farm. Since the Nisa brings you riches, if one farm is prospering, others would spread rumors that, oh, he's got a Nisa doing the work and he's stealing from the neighbors. And according to the legends, these domestic spirits did often steal from a neighbor to increase the prosperity of the farm that they live on. In another story, there was a farmer, and he had no hay left for his farm animals, and he was just super bummed. He's like, oh, what am I going to do? He heard a voice say, I will help you. He didn't find the voice, but within days, his animals were thriving, even though he hadn't fed them. The Nisa had been stealing hay from the neighbors to provide for this man. <laughs> and the present-day version of the Yulnis is different than the domestic Tomta or Nisa. So like the Christmas version and the domestic version. Today, it's like an older, normal-sized person with a long white beard, red hat, and suit that carries a sack of toys and visits children on Christmas Eve and asks, Erdet Nyon Sneel Barner? Are there any good children here? He might be seen with a pig. Either way, the Yule niece or Yule Tumpt must be left a bowl of Yule Grat. That's the story of Venisa and Tomta. What do you think? Would you like to adopt a a gnome indentured servant? (laughs) No. You sound way too sensitive. (laughs) And mischievous. And the last one I want to tell you about is the Yulbak, the Yule goat. In Sweden, Yule Tomte was accompanied by a Christmas goat that pulls a sleigh. In pagan times, the god Thor was believed to ride across the sky in a chariot pulled by two goats. Thor had a weird relationship with his goats, though. He kept slaughtering them and eating them, knowing they'd be brought back to life the next day. I mean, that makes sense, if you know. It's a renewable resource. Exactly. And the goat was adopted as a Christmas symbol, and they believed that a chained buck represents Lucifer being conquered by St. Nicholas so that the reindeer didn't really work with their whole thing. Didn't vibe with reindeer. Sounds like a long story attached to that. <laughs> I, that's all I know about that one. As a part of a, midwe- a midwinter celebration in Sweden, the Yule Offer, sacrifice of a man in goat skins carrying a goat head effigy pretending to be one of Thor's goats was a thing. They would symbolically kill the man and he was brought to life the next day. 
And in the 17th century, it was a dark and scary Yule Bach roaming the countryside on Christmas, demanding food and frightening Christians. But eventually, the goat became a happy critter. People would dress up as goats and go door to door like you do. They might bring candy or gifts or leave a little straw goat on your doorstep, sometimes being ridden by a little tomta. <laughs> Another fun tradition is called Yule Bocking, where a group of you dress up as goats, go door to door singing the holiday songs, you wear masks, and you might disguise your voice and body language, and people who live at the house have to guess who you are. And then they'll give you a treat and a drink, and everybody will come in, have a little song, and then the group is going to leave, but they're going to take a volunteer from the house to come with them, and then the party just keeps growing as you go door to door. Like, we're having a rockin' Yule Bocking here. Who wants to come with us? I don't know who we are. We don't know who we are. <laughs> We're trying to fool you. Please give us food and drink. <laughs> and the Yule Goat has its own special story in Sweden. Every year in Sweden, a town celebrates the start of the Christmas season by putting up a giant straw statue of a goat. And they wait. And they sometimes place bets on whether the goat will make it to Christmas. Because there's another tradition, too. Every year, someone tries to burn down the goat. And more often than not, they succeed. <laughs> do they? Is this a secret Santa? Do they draw straws to see who gets the honor of trying? And then other people just, I don't know, try to keep them from burning the goat? Like what? I, some people see a straw goat and they're like, I have to see it burn. I just, I have to see the world on fire. <laughs> so for hundreds of years, Europe had these big festivals called Yule. The Yule goat is supposed to help deliver the presents, like Santa's riding the goat. And so the town of Gavel, I, I'm saying that horribly, Galv, in 1966 makes the giant Yule goat for the first time. And it's 49 feet tall because it's festive and people like it. The ones who aren't arsonists anyway. And it's really good for tourism, too. Who wouldn't want to go there during Christmas and see this spectacle? The first goat ever made it to New Year's Eve and then was burned down at midnight. In the past 50 years, the goat has been destroyed 35 times. The town has tried lots of different ways to protect the goat. They station guards, put up security cameras. You can actually watch the feed online to check on the goat. And sometimes they would spray the goat with water and flame-proof chemicals, which sadly did not work. In 2005, a group dressed up as Santa and gingerbread men came in and fired flaming arrows at the goat. In 2009, they hacked into the security feed and took it down before setting the goat on fire. Very hype. It's, it's, it's all heisty. An American tourist did the job in 2001 after his Swedish friends put him up to it and spent two weeks in jail. <laughs> in 1976, someone rammed it with a car. In 2010, a guard was offered a bribe by two men who wanted to use a helicopter to fly away with the goat. He didn't take the bribe. <laughs> 2016 was the 50th anniversary. The town was really excited for this. They unveiled the goat. On November 27th, and it was in flames that night. And it's really important to the city's economy that the goat not be burned down or else not as many people will come visit. I did a check right before we came in to record. 
this year's goat is still standing as of right now. Oh my god. I have to go get this on my monitor. <laughs> we gotta watch. We gotta make sure that the Yule goat will be okay. We're, it's getting close. I know. It's just got a few more sleeps till Christmas. <laughs> so, I told you about Belschnickel, Nisa sure. Tomta, and Yule goat. Yep. What are your, your parting thoughts, summary? What have you learned from the stories today, Dan? People are weird. Merry Christmas. That's it? Mm-hmm. Did you enjoy hearing about these stories, Dan? Um, yes. I always enjoy absolutely every moment of hearing about characters from all over the world and how other people celebrate Christmas. Are you a robot? <laughs> No, I'm not. (laughs) Well, that concludes today's episode. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas. Thank you for listening to Tail Wagging, a gleeful retelling of little-known fairy tales, folklore, history, and more. If you'd like to get in touch or send us a story you'd like to hear on the podcast, you can find us on our Facebook page, Tail Wagging Podcast, or on Twitter, at Tail Wagging Pod. That's T-A-L-E-W-A-G-G-I-N-G-P-O-D. We'd really love it if you could take a moment to please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast anywhere you can. It really helps us get found on this new adventure. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend, tweet about it on the interwebs, or send a raven. And if you are under an evil enchantment or have been turned into a creature of some kind, I can't promise listening to the next episode will transform you back. But it might. This is Tail Wagging. May all your dreams come true.